impact has the HPV vaccine had on cervical cancer rates? How does stigma affect patients with HIV? And what do GPs need to know about antidepressants? We will be addressing these questions in this episode of the Clinical Update Podcast. I'm your host, Dawn Liz Powell, and with me today are Sangeeta Krishnan and Pat Anderson. They are going to be discussing cervical cancer, which is the fourth most common cancer in women worldwide. Later, our colleague Rhiannon Ashman will be speaking to Professor Mark Nelson about HIV. But for now, over to you, Sangeeta and Pat. Thanks, Dawn. So given that Cervical Cancer Prevention Week was just last month and World Cancer Day was earlier this month, this topic has been at the top of my mind. I'm talking about Cervical Cancer, which is a clinical review by Mr. Manas Chakrabarti, available on MIMS Learning. 90% of the global cervical cancer burden occurs in low- and middle-income countries. So what's the situation in the UK? In England, over the past 30 years, cervical cancer incidence has decreased by a quarter. The lifetime risk of developing cervical cancer is 1 in 142, with over 3,000 new cases in the UK every year. Of cervical cancers, 30% are detected through screening and most of these are early-stage microinvasive disease. And interestingly, within the UK, there is quite a lot of variation in its incidence, depending on the location. And data have shown that deprivation is strongly associated with this variation. So GPs have been doing cervical screening for decades now. And more recently, we've seen the introduction of the HPV vaccination programme. What's been the impact of these programmes? Mr. Chakrabarti says that the cold recall system by the NHS, which was introduced in the UK in 1988, exceeded 80% coverage of screening for the target population. But there has been a gradual decline in coverage, going down from 82% in the late 90s to about 75% in the past five years. This has played a major role in the sharp increase in cervical cancer survival. But the most striking development in the field of cervical cancer is its primary prevention after the introduction of the HPV vaccine. The introduction of cervical cancer vaccination in England in 2008 has led to reduction in the rates of cervical cancer by 87%. So that's quite amazing. Are all cancer cases caused by HPV or are there other risk factors as well? Nearly all cancer cases are caused by HPV. The persistence of HPV infection is the most important factor in developing cervical cancer. However, there are more than 100 genotypes of this virus and only 13 are associated with cervical cancer incidence. There are some other risk factors. For instance, women who smoke are twice as likely to develop cervical cancer than those who do not. Reduced immune status because of HIV, AIDS or immunosuppressants, use of the combined oral contraceptive pill, multiple sexual partners and giving birth to more than three children are some of the other risk factors and associations with cervical cancer. So if I'm a GP seeing lots of people in my surgery, what symptoms should I be looking out for in case I am seeing one of the increasingly less likely cases of cervical cancer? So abnormal vaginal bleeding is the most common symptom of cervical cancer. Postcoital bleeding is the classic presenting symptom. Bleeding is often triggered by cervical contact. Inter or postmenstrual bleeding may also be a sign. Anyone with a cervix with abnormal bleeding should be examined using a speculum. 
In advanced disease, the presenting symptoms can include dyspareunia, pelvic pain, offensive vaginal discharge, hematuria, and other nonspecific symptoms, including weight loss, changes in bladder and bowel habit, and abdominal pain. And what are the treatment options? So the treatment is tailored to the sage, subtype, and tumor grade, presence of comorbidities, and the patient's age, as well as their wishes regarding fertility and management options. So the treatment modalities include surgery, radiotherapy, and chemotherapy, and it's mandatory to discuss management in a specialist, multidisciplinary team meeting. The challenge remains to manage long-term treatment-related morbidity, including sexual dysfunction, local and systemic side effects, and psychological morbidities, local excision, bilateral pelvic lymphadenectomy, and radical trachelectomy are some of the treatment options used in common subtypes of squamous cell carcinoma, adenocarcinoma, and adenosquamous cancer of the cervix. Rarer subtypes like neuroendocrine and lymphoma are primarily treated with chemotherapy with or without radiotherapy or surgery. And are we seeing any new developments in the treatment of this cancer? So to avoid the side effects of radical surgery and retain fertility options, a trend has evolved towards less radical surgery for early cancers. The landmark SHAPE trial suggested that in truly low-risk disease, evaluated by good pathology, imaging and clinical evaluation, it might be safe to offer a simple hysterectomy. For a more detailed discussion of the management of this condition, including a case study, I strongly recommend reading the clinical review on MEMS Learning. Thanks for that really interesting discussion. Now on to our interview section, which sees our colleague Rhiannon Ashman talk to Professor Mark Nelson about HIV. I'm really pleased to welcome our guest, Professor Mark Nelson, to the podcast. Mark Nelson is a consultant physician at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London. He's Professor of HIV Medicine at Imperial College Medical School, where he is also senior tutor. He's built a large HIV practice with a special interest in HIV inpatient care, co-infection with hepatitis B and C, and the clinical utility of new antiretroviral agents. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. So could you tell me a bit about the state of play at the moment when it comes to HIV in the UK? So when we look at HIV in the UK, the state of play really is, is very good. There's a, a been big campaigns uh, to really uh, look at all aspects of the continuum of care. So to get people diagnosed, to get them into care and to remain in, in care uh, and get them on successful treatment. And the fact is we now have highly successful treatments. You know, I'd go as far as to say that they would work in everybody as long as they take them. And one of the big advantages we have in HIV compared with a few years ago is we have a wide choice of agents in numerous different classes, uh, which are relatively easy to take. You're never going to say easy to take, but the majority of people can take one tablet once a day. Uh, the success rates are incredibly high, as I say, approaching 100% or, or actually 100% if people can take them. And a lot of work being done on looking at not uh, increasing success rates, because that's not really possible, but looking at how we deliver care. So 
do you have to take tablets? No, there are now injectables which are relevant for, for some individuals uh, and are useful for some individuals uh, and other uh, modalities coming, microneedle patches, injectable drugs which can be given up to six months. So really we need to concentrate not on the treatment of HIV, but getting people diagnosed and getting people into care and remaining care. And there remain individuals in the UK who may not be aware of their HIV diagnosis or who are unaware of the fact that they are at risk of HIV. And also there are individuals really due to other social constraints uh, who may find it difficult to access care or remaining care. That sounds really promising where we're at in terms of treatment and how effective treatment is. And you mentioned the social constraints. So what are the what are those social constraints? What are the barriers to people entering care and remaining in care? I think the barriers to people remaining in care is, is first of all, there remains stigma around an HIV diagnosis, particularly in some groups. And perhaps that, that actually is more important in getting people diagnosed. If people don't know the diagnosis, they can't access care. Uh, so one of the things we're trying to do is to drive down stigma, not only in the UK, but I'm looking at it globally. I run a lot of uh, stigma workshops uh, in Asia. We've run them in the USA, even in Saudi Arabia, with a very positive response, in fact, of, of really seeing how we can reduce stigma uh, uh, to allow testing and access to care. But of course, there are other social constraints, mental health uh, um, money, uh, financial, having to get to the clinic. With ageing, of course, access may become more difficult. So so it's very important to look at uh, uh, a holistic approach to HIV. And one of the, the disappointments, I think, for someone as old as me is that we used to do everything uh, for someone living with HIV, probably because no one else would. Uh, and there was a lot of stigma around in those days, but it allowed us, us to provide a, a, a truly holistic approach. And now, uh, unfortunately, I spend most of my time saying, go and see your GP. You know, that's not something I can do for you. And of course, the poor GPs are under a lot of strain as well. So so uh, mm. I think although we've, we've come a a really long way as regards HIV uh, uh, and successful treatment, the actual approach to the individual living with HIV and what we were able to achieve is in some ways diminished. Uh, uh, but that, unfortunately, is the way of medicine in this country and the way of the world. So you mentioned about the stigma that might act as a barrier to people getting a diagnosis in the first place. Is is there still a degree of stigma within the healthcare professional community it depends how you define stigma and what is stigmatizing i think i think if you look at the understanding of what living with hiv means the lack of understanding uh, within health professionals has been shown quite recently in surveys done in east london uh, where people still felt that uh, uh, someone with uh, um, an undetectable viral load could transmit the virus uh, not only to a partner but also to 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 a child uh, that someone there's you know, still a lot of uh, stigma around the diagnosis itself it being uh, dirty uh, and certainly that kind of stigma remains not only in the health profession uh, but in 
in the world as a whole. And so it's really important we look at education as a means of destigmatizing HIV and making sure that people know. And the, the kind of campaigns such as U equals U, undetectable equals untransmissible. Uh, and, and I think that's really important when we talk about that. It's untransmissible it's not there's a slight risk of transmission it's undetectable viral load i.e control of the virus means you cannot transmit the virus to others and that kind of understanding you, you know within the general population and within medicine is really important and i think it, it it's a negative thing of the the medical profession and i mean the medical profession as a whole not just doctors over the lack of continuing education o o over hiv you know it's it's no longer a very exciting disease you know when when people were dying particularly celebrities dying of hiv it was on the television every day world aids day december the 1st was was you know a, a massive thing on television you know all night and now as people aren't dying which is great uh, as treatment is successful which is great you know, there's very little education going on uh, uh, around what HIV means at the present time, although it affects a large number of people in this country and globally a huge number of people. I heard you talking in a previous video that I'd watched about um, the stigma around PrEP. And obviously, you've, you know, you've mentioned about the success of treatment and, and U equals U. And um wonder if you could tell me a bit more about about that and how that might impact patients. I mean, preps preps a very interesting thing because it's it's a fantastic uh, uh, concept which was actually first mentioned by a, a colleague of mine. He was actually my boss at the time, Mike Yule, who, who suggested that you know people could take antiretrovirals to actually prevent. HIV. So those people, individuals who are at risk of HIV. Uh, and so PrEP has had a, a, an amazing effect, uh, I think, on, on reducing risk, making people much happier about, uh, about sex. You know, it's, again, highly successful. Uh, it's one tablet which you either take every day or you can take it uh, around the time of the act if you prefer it prefer it that way. Uh, but but PrEP, it's very important about how we use language. And I think increasingly in medicine, uh, as well as globally, of course, uh, you know, the how we use language is increasingly important. Uh, and when we talk about PrEP, we, we initially started talking about those at high risk, you know, so immediately you're stigmatizing people. How often are you having sex to see uh, uh, whether you deserve or, or whether can access PrEP? Again, stigmatizing. And, and because sex is, uh, uh, continues to be a dirty word, uh, it's not only Victorians who found it abhorrent, lots of other people uh, are uncomfortable talking about sex. Uh, uh, that because individuals who take PrEP were, were, were perceived to be sexually active or sexually hyperactive uh, to some individuals, although uh, we have things such as PrEP, which are, when used and understood, really reduce stigma a lot, we need to make sure that it's understood in its entirety so it isn't actually stigmatizing so we've we've talked about taking care with the language that we use and we've talked about education being important any advice that you could give in terms of what healthcare professionals could do 
in their practice to help to reduce stigma and improve access for their patients? The thing about language is that we all make mistakes in language every day, as the quote from the Bible, let him without sin cast the first stone. And I think, you know, we all do it. Uh, uh, And we had a very interesting uh, workshop with members of the trans community where we discussed this and the use of language and when individuals make mistakes, uh, such as wrong use of pronouns, etc., etc., that that the the issue that they said wasn't the mistake it's not the mistake it's people being embarrassed by the mistake thinking that they've done wrong and not learning from that mistake so we all make mistakes in medicine as in life and it's about learning from those mistakes and trying not to repeat it i think also it's about getting individuals in the medical community early so when we've done uh, stigma workshops not in the UK, but outside of the UK, we've gone away from trying to change individuals who may be set in their ways and trying to actually talk to much younger people. So trying to get them early when they're medical students. And medical students have really been very uh, positive about this kind of approach, about learning about stigma and how not to stigmatise. And I think that goes a lot further than HIV. There are other conditions which uh, uh, individuals have in medicine which may potentially be very stigmatising. Drug use, as as an example, other sexually transmitted diseases, anal carcinoma, you know, there are lots of things where people have embarrassment uh, and have challenges and how to address this in a very open way. So I think what people can do is actively learn to actually try and move forward in medicine so that this doesn't happen in the future. I think I think what's important uh, about access to care and different communities, it goes much further than HIV. And we've learned several lessons along the way in HIV. And certainly one of the groups I work with and I'm a trustee of is NAS, which has looked at uh, provider, making ensuring good provision of HIV uh, uh, and sexual health care uh, to members of our of minority populations, Africans, Asians, etc. And, and what we've seen is is the way forward is is in some ways the job is done in HIV, but to move forward as regards other diseases. So we know in black communities that there is high rates of undiagnosed diabetes, hypertension, mental health, and and you use the experience of talking to these populations and ensuring positive health outcomes, that we use that knowledge to actually drive forward better medical care in other aspects. I, you know, you mentioned earlier about sort of the different communities and the different barriers that they they might face. Um, I was really interested, actually, that you mentioned about older people. Um, obviously, you know, I'm imagining there are a, a lot of um older people now who having been on treatment you know have survived longer than expected and are living with HIV. I think the elderly population with HIV is interesting in that individuals living with HIV uh, are now going to outlive those individuals not living with HIV Uh, and um, 
The reason for that is because of all the screening uh, that we do, looking for comorbidities, looking for heart disease, bone disease, liver disease, kidney disease, whilst that the uh, non-HIV population has to wait for an event to actually happen before they often access care. So we're certainly going to see an ageing HIV population. And one of the issues with living with HIV, which is very pro-inflammatory, is that there may, there may be an increased risk of frailty. So very important that we think about a, an ageing HIV population and what needs to be provided for them. It becomes a difficult situation, I think, where, when actually we're providing better care to someone living with HIV to not living with HIV. And, you know, many years ago, it was the HIV population outside saying, give us good care. Should it be the HIV negative population saying, I want the same care that any, any individual gets, that we should all be getting exactly the same care, which is what medicine should be about. So I think there is the idea that we will have an ageing HIV population with specific needs, but we've got an ageing population without HIV with exactly the same needs. That's a fascinating concept that I hadn't thought about, the benefits to people's sort of um, other health um, outside of their HIV diagnosis. Um, that leads me on then to you talked about comorbidities to talk about your um, your other special interest, which is co-infection with hepatitis. Um, can you tell me a bit about the prevalence um, of co-infection and and sort of what that means? So, so I think when we look at uh, hepatitis co-infection uh, with HIV. Uh, we're aware that the population at risk or the populations at risk of HIV are often the same populations at risk of hepatitis B and hepatitis C. So both in this country and indeed globally, uh, we see high rates of co-infection with hepatitis B and hepatitis C. So in this country, hepatitis C was a, a major interest of mine um, that we started to see many years ago, individuals living with HIV suddenly becoming acutely infected with hepatitis C. Uh, and we saw a large group of these individuals and we tried to get it published and everyone said, you're making it up. This isn't true. No one else sees it. Uh, and suddenly other clinics in London started to see it and they said, oh, well, that's just uh, uh, London. And then it occurred in the whole of the UK and they said just the UK. Then it happened in Europe. Uh, the Americans said it would never happen there and it happened there. And there was clearly individuals living uh, with HIV who were men who were having sex with men uh, were actually catching hepatitis C clearly as a sexually transmitted disease, often related to uh, quite traumatic uh, sexual practices, uh, multiple sexual partners in the context of uh, other sexually transmitted infections. Uh, and so we saw quite a lot of hepatitis C in other populations, such as individuals who uh, were using uh, drugs intravenously, again, co-infection, people who'd, who'd got HIV from uh, blood transfusion or blood products, co-infection. We're very lucky, again, to have very successful drugs to treat hepatitis C. When I started, the only treatment which was interferon, which was highly toxic and not very successful. We now have uh, several oral agents given for eight to 12 weeks uh, and 
almost 100% cure. So we're really down to the idea of micro-elimination of hepatitis C. Everyone with HIV is tested for hepatitis C once a year. And certainly in our clinic, I don't think there's anyone left with chronic hepatitis C, but we continue to see individuals uh, catching hepatitis C again, both in the HIV and HIV negative populations sexually. We're lucky with hepatitis B that the drugs we use to treat hepatitis B are the same we use to treat HIV. So we can use the same drugs for for both infections. The difference between hepatitis B and hepatitis C is hepatitis C is curable with short courses of treatment. With hepatitis B, just like HIV, we suppress the virus so that if an individual were to stop that treatment, it bounces back. So for the HIV individual, it's, it's not that difficult because the drugs are the same. So there's not multiple uh, drugs or multiple risk of drug-drug interactions. Um, what we're looking at more and more, though, uh, and a great deal of interest and, again, a great deal of research going on, is about cure of hepatitis B. Uh, and it's very exciting to move forward from actually dealing with a disease where we're suppressing to actually thinking about how we may be able to cure it. And there are several research studies ongoing. Indeed, we've got a study going on here with Immunicor looking at the potential for drugs to actually cure hepatitis B in the future. Does that mean that there's not really so much of a problem with it progressing to liver disease um, amongst people with HIV? So. So if we look at individuals who've been cured of hepatitis C, many of them have have had hepatitis C for a long period of time and are left with a degree of fibrosis. And some of them them have already developed cirrhosis. And despite improvements uh, in their level of fibrosis, we still monitor them for the potential development of hepatomas, which is linked to cirrhosis. As regards hepatitis B, most people have picked up quite early uh, uh, as they're treated, uh, as they're diagnosed with HIV. So we see uh, minimal uh, um, liver fibrosis, but there is a, a potential slight increased risk in the develop, risk of development of hepatoma, and they certainly need screening for that. I think I think we need to get away from you know hepatitis B and hepatitis C is what's often talked about in the context of liver disease in HIV. The major causes of liver disease are exactly the same as we see in the general population, so much more linked to alcohol uh, and to fatty liver disease. So I think... Uh, Again, it's it's really important that this holistic care of an individual living with HIV, we know there are high rates of fatty liver disease in individuals with HIV, and that we continue to screen individuals not just for infectious complications, but for all the comorbidities which are increased within the context of HIV. Was there anything else that I've missed that you wanted to add or you wanted to talk about? So, so I would just say, you know, I, I think about about stigma. The problem when we talk about stigma is we're often stigmatizing ourselves, but you know, you know, by talking about it and making it exciting. Stigma is is a very challenging thing for individuals with chronic disease, and, and, and you know, much more than HIV, but with with any chronic disease because a lot of the stigmatization is actually internal stigma. So we've talked quite a lot about external stigma about individuals stigmatizing but important to realize that individuals 
with a chronic disease, including HIV, are often self-stigmatizing, and we need to give them support to prevent that. You know, what a living with HIV is about is quality and quantity of life. I think we're very lucky with the drugs in that we they, they are fantastic at increasing quantity of life. I think what we need to concentrate on now within HIV is the quality of life. And I think stigma is one of the major contributors to spoiling that quality of life, which can really be gained and is achievable thanks to the successful drugs that we have. I think that's a really um, great point to finish on. Thank you very much, um, Professor Mark Nelson, for that really fascinating discussion about HIV. Listeners, if you are interested in um, reading any more on HIV, we have a number of modules on our website, mimslearning.co.uk, covering HIV-associated malignancies um, and latest guidance on HIV. Uh, If you're interested in reading more about health inequalities, We have our campaign running at the moment and there are a number of modules on this topic on our website as well. Hi, I'm Emma Bauer, editor of the website GP Online and host of the Talking General Practice podcast. If you're interested in what's going on in primary care across the UK, do come and check out our podcast. Talking General Practice is out every Friday and includes discussions about the key issues and news stories affecting general practice and interviews with GP leaders as well as inspiring GPs and others who are making a difference to patient care. Just search Talking General Practice wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen. Last but not least is our three key points feature where we bring you three important takeaways from one of our modules. Today we'll be discussing a module based on a talk at Mims Learning Live Liverpool. In this talk, Professor Carolyn Chu Graham spoke about identifying and managing depression in primary care. So, Pat, what is our first key point? Our first point is that some people with depression may present with physical symptoms rather than low mood. Professor Chu Graham reported that an older person, for example, might not have the language to describe their thoughts and feelings, So they might ask for a tonic, for example, um, because they're tired or feel generally unwell. And in these situations, Professor Chu Graham does a PHQ-9 test to identify whether the patient has depression. And if the test indicates that they do, she will then raise the issue of depression with them. She tries to introduce the language of mental health to them as this can help guide their management. Our second key point is that antidepressants are not the first-line treatment for people with less severe depression. According to Professor Chu Graham, trials suggest that antidepressants are no better than placebo for people with milder forms of depression. For this reason, NICE recommends stalking therapies as the first-line treatment for less severe depression. However, Professor Chu Graham does say that antidepressants can be used if talking therapies are not available, which they might not be. Our final point is that if antidepressants are used, be mindful of how long a patient has been taking them. There are some indications that people are taking antidepressants for an average of five years, which goes beyond the evidence base. Thus, Professor Q. Graham says review patients who are on antidepressants and look at whether they still need them. And if withdrawal is warranted, plan for a very slow withdrawal, as otherwise there is a risk of discontinuation symptoms. So... To sum up, our three key points are patients with depression may present with physical symptoms rather than low mood. Antidepressants are not the first line treatment for people with less severe depression. And be mindful of how long a patient has been taking an antidepressant. Thanks so much for joining us today. 
All of the modules we discussed are on the MIMS Learning website. Do check out the description section below for the relevant links. And see you in two weeks for our next episode.